Welcome to The Way Home Podcast, a conversation about church, community, and culture. I'm your host, Dan Darling, here in Nashville, Tennessee. And today I'm joined by my good friend, Sean McDowell. Sean is an internationally known speaker and author or editor of 18 books. He's also an assistant professor in the Christian Apologetics Program at Biola University. Uh, Today we're going to talk with Sean about a few topics. Uh, One is cultural engagement and apologetics and what that looks like in the 21st century. Uh, We're also going to ask him how he's teaching students and how he encourages parents and teachers to really pass down the faith from one generation to another. And along those lines, I'm going to ask him what was it about growing up in a famous home. Uh, his father is Josh McDowell, a uh, famous evangelist and speaker. What was it like growing up in his home and what are the lessons he learned? You hear a lot of stories of Christians, of uh, sons and daughters of famous Christians falling away from the faith, being disillusioned. Why wasn't Sean one of those stories and what did, what did he learn in his childhood that he's passing on to his own children. It should be a fun conversation. Before we begin with Sean, however, I want to remind you about ERLC's weekly newsletter called The Weekly. Uh, it's a quick but informative read on top news stories from a Christian perspective. We summarize national and international news stories. It's curated by our staff. Really, it's a way for busy people who are working at families and jobs and church and, and all these things to kind of get briefed uh, once a week on Uh, the top news stories. You can sign up for the weekly by visiting my website, danieldarling.com and clicking on the link. But for now, let's join our conversation with Sean McDowell. Well, I'm here with my friend, Sean McDowell. Thanks, Sean, for joining me on the podcast today. Appreciate it. Oh my goodness. Thanks for having me, Daniel. This is fun. So there's so many things I want to talk to you about. You have this new great resource. I mean, really fantastic resource. It's a apologetic study Bible for students that was just published. I have a copy here. It's really great. I'm excited to use it with our family and kids. And, uh, you know, your family has a history of apologetics. So I, I think where I want to start is, you know, uh, talk about your second generation Christian, your dad, obviously Josh McDowell, famous uh, apologist, before we talk about, you know, kind of tips for parents and, and educators, I want to talk just what was it about your growing up years that, you know, allowed you to stay in the faith? There's so much talk about kids of pastors or just, you know, evangelical young people leaving the faith. You obviously didn't, not only did you not, but you're, you're in ministry yourself and you're you're a, a leader and speaker. So what was it, I guess, about your growing up years that really cemented your faith? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I'd say a few things. First off, my my parents not only taught me truth, but they really lived it and they really believed it. There was never any doubt that, like, I had this is my parents' job or, you know, this is a hobby or something like that. They believed it. I could see it, how they spent their time, their money, their mm-hmm. focus, their interest, their passion. They believed it. So with faith being passed on, one of the real keys is that parents actually model a kind of faith so their kids kind of see the real deal. And the real deal includes people failing and falling short. My parents certainly did. But the first thing is they really just b- believed it. And second is my parents, I think they did a good job of not just kind of telling me what to believe and giving mm-hmm. me simple answers, but regularly engaging us in conversation. So whether it was driving in the car, sitting at a, you know, a meal at home, 
just going on a walk, whatever it was. I realize now how strategic it was, but I didn't see it at the time, that my dad was just asking questions about culture, about the Bible, to engage us in conversations. And he didn't give us simple answers. He'd frequently mm-hmm. say, well, what do you think? You know, how would you answer this? What do you think the Bible says about this? And just engage us in conversation relationally so we could own that truth. And then the third thing I think my parents did, it's interesting, there was a study by uh, Vern Bengston in 2013. He's a professor at USC, University of Southern California. And he published his book with Oxford Press. It's called Faith and Families. And they did a 35-year study of faith transmission. 35 years. And they had, they had 3,500 people from kids and parents and great-grandparents, great-grandkids. And they were examining, saying, what are the most important factors for faith transmission? You know what the number one was, Daniel? In some ways, it's not a surprise, but how powerful it is. From their data, they said the number one factor was a warm relationship with the Father. Mm, Wow. That's number one. Wow. My parents modeled it. They taught us how, how to think. But there was a genuine relationship there that even though my dad was gone probably 50% of the time traveling and speaking, worked really hard at having that warm relationship, and it made a huge, huge difference. That's such a great segue into what what I want to talk about. I mean, today, I think more than ever in America, parents are a little bit nervous because the culture's changing. You and I uh, acknowledge that. Uh, This is not the culture maybe they grew up in. Perhaps there's a little misunderstanding about the sort of the the Christian's relationship with the world and, you know, being affirmed by the culture. So my first question is, what kind of advice are you giving to parents of kids in terms of really passing on the faith to the next generation? Well, one thing I would say is start early. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't wait until kids are in junior high or high school. Arguably, that's too late. I mean, there used to be a statistic in youth ministry that probably most of your listeners would 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 remember when, you know, people would say when a kid graduates from high school, if you haven't reached them with Jesus by this stage, <laughs> you know, it's too late. But what happened is probably because of technology and our shifting culture, the questions that kids used to ask in college and high school and then junior high mm. and the experiences they had are now being pushed back further and further into elementary school. In fact, there was a recent book about, you know, the kind of belief formation of young people. Mm-hmm. And the author said a lot of kids' worldview beliefs about God are formed by the time they're eight years old. Mm-hmm. Eight years old. So faith transition, the key is to just start young. And, you know, second is kind of like I said earlier, is really build that relationship with your kid more than anything else. Spend time, listen. You know, parents always want to say to me, they go, when do you have you have these meaningful conversation with your kids. And I say, well, if you want that meaningful conversation, setting it up and giving it the background are hours upon hours of seemingly meaningless conversations about sports, about a TV show, about whatever builds that relationship that kind of gives you the capital, so to speak, to have those meaningful conversations. And then third, frankly, I'm a huge believer, Daniel, in Summit Ministries. I absolutely think what they're doing is 
just cutting edge. It's fantastic. I'm sure you've talked about this or familiar with it, but those aged 16 to 23, I speak for them all the time. It's 12 days of the best worldview training, I think, on the planet. So if you have kids or great-grandkids and you want to pass your faith on to them, I would say think about sending them to Summit. It's a pretty special will be trained for students. And chances are I'll be there and we could even get to hang out. Hmm. The thing that I've, I've really been thinking about and writing about and talking about, and I know you agree with, is it seems like in another generation, we assumed that the culture would teach our kids a lot that perhaps we should have been teaching them. And so now that we're sort of in a culture where Christians are more and more a distinct minority, as, as the church really has always been throughout history, we have to really catechize our kids from a young age, be intentional, right, about teaching them orthodoxy, teaching them about marriage and gender and all those issues, right? Well, I think that's right. I would even say the assumption is that we think the church is Mm -hmm. going to teach our kids. Mm. But I taught at a Christian high school full-time for 10 years. Now I'm at Biola in a graduate apologetics program, but I still do a couple high school classes Mm. uh, with students on Bible and theology, because I love working with high school students. And it's amazing me over the years how many parents I've had that will say something or indicate, like, you know what? We haven't been able to teach our kids worldview. We're sure glad they're in your class and you can teach them this stuff. <laughs> and I, I rarely come outright and say this, but what I'm thinking is, man, if you haven't taught your kid a worldview by now, there's little that I can do. And second, it's not my job. I'm here to support you. I'm here to maybe mm-hmm. have some conversations and go deeper in some areas that I'm trained in. But the scriptures consistently put the primary responsibility on the parents. And all studies show that every study I've ever seen over the past probably 20, 30 years, still today, even with our changing culture, it's still the parents who have the number one influence on their kids more than culture does. Mm -hmm. So we need to kind of have a paradigm shift from saying, all right, the culture, we certainly don't want the wider world to teach our kids how to think about relationships and God and morality Mm -hmm. and truth, but we can't even assume the church is going to do it. And that's not a criticism of the church. That's just because it's the first responsibilities of parents. And thank God for the youth pastor. Thank God for the head pastor. Thank God for the church to support what parents are supposed to be doing in the home. And it seems like there's two ways for parents to really train their kids, teach them, you know, orthodoxy, teach them the gospel and worldview. On the one hand, you know, like a, you know, systematically saying, we're going to go through these key doctrines, we're going to talk about these things, but also organically, right? When questions arise, when there's opportunities to teach, uh, whether it's the culture presents it, right? Or maybe there's a, there's a conflict in the home. Uh, so is that sort of how you encourage parents? You know, what's interesting is one question I've been getting, I've been meaning to write a blog on this, Daniel, it's about devotionals in the McDowell home. Mm. Because people often say, well, what were devotionals like when you were growing up? And I look at them, I say, we didn't have devotionals. And the look on people's faces, <laughs> they feel like they've been betrayed because my dad wrote two devotionals. Mm. And I'll say, well, let me clarify what I mean. The idea of a devotional, sit down from 6 to 6.30, family, formal, religious discussion, and then move on to the rest of your life. If that works for you, that's fine, and there's totally some value in doing that. But our family, with my dad traveling, with sports, it just, things were a little bit crazier in the McDowell home. So what my parents did is follow what I think is a biblical model. 
I mean, Deuteronomy 6.4, you know, in the following verses, the Shema talks about, you know, love the Lord God with your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Teach these to your kids when you walk along the road, when you lay down, when you get up, when you sit around the home, meaning make uh, spiritual conversations a part of the rhythm of life. So looking for these natural opportunities, and sometimes you have to plan them, but natural opportunities, I mean, for example, my family and I, we watch the TV show, The Flash, and not my three-year-old, but my two kids who are eight and 11, we sit down and we watch The Flash together. And most of it is just fun and, you know, we enjoy it and we talk about it. But I look for certain moments to just hit pause for like 30 seconds or one minute, especially when something comes up that, you know, there'll be an issue about sexuality or living together first that we disagree with. I just pause it. My kids go, oh, dad, play it. And I go, but look, we're going to watch this. I get one minute and then we'll move on. And they'll literally time me. And I just make a quick point that I wanted to see. And then we move on. The best kind of conversations are just looking sometimes planned, sometimes natural as they arise at the dinner table when you're driving the car. Now, we don't want to exasperate our kids and overdo it. But far more people just never even have those genuine spiritual conversations. Mm -hmm. And it's just opportunities we miss to help our kids develop a Christian worldview. Mm, That's really good. And one of the things I really enjoy about the way that you do worldview and apologetics is it's not like so many that are so like kind of a defensive apologetics. And one of the things I fear with my kids is that I'm going to be so intent on making sure they have the right answers and they're not corrupted by the culture, that they're sort of defensive instead of missional, uh, wanting to go into the world and be on mission for God. So can you explain that sort of tension there? Yeah, I, I share that tension with, with my own kids as well. I don't want them to think this is about arguing. I don't want them to think, you know, it's just about having simple answers and that life is messy. So one thing that I do is I try to model this for my kids. So not too long ago, I had a friend over, an atheist buddy, for dinner. And not to, like, debate God. We didn't even really get into apologetics, although we have those conversations. Just to come over and talk and build a relationship. And he could see how we interact together, and that I care for him, and that even though we differ substantially in these questions, there's still a care and a relationship and a genuineness that is there. I take my students on trips. We go to places like Salt Lake City, and I've brought my son along many times, and we've had multiple conversations with Mormons. And they're always respectful um, both ways. We learn stuff from each other, and we talk about meaningful issues. I'm taking, in April, I'm taking my students to Berkeley, and we'll bring in atheists and agnostics and probably a a homosexual activist. Mm. And we'll have these conversations that'll talk about real issues. But it's always with mutual respect and care. So I think when our when our kids actually see us doing this and we model it for them, they can realize that it's not about, you know, sometimes they have a tendency to label people. It's those secular humanists, those mm-hmm. postmodernists, those gay activists, and it's, you know, like lobbing grenades back and forth. But I found in relationships when we get to know people, those defenses start to break down. And I love at the end of her book, Kirsten Powers' recent book, Mm-hmm. called The Silencing, about the real intolerance of the left. I was looking for this huge plan about how we could overcome intolerance, and at the end, there's like one paragraph, 
And basically what she says is go out and build relationships with people. Mm. That was it. Mm. But then when I read it, I thought that's so profound. Because when you're in a relationship with somebody and they see how you act and how you interact and they see a genuineness that is there, they're willing, they can really see that uh, apologetics in action, how you treat people. I try to do that with my kids. Yeah. Do you think some of some of a new paradigm shift for parents and for Christians is just the reality that we're not the majority anymore, or maybe we never even were, but getting back to kind of First Peter, where we're sojourners and strangers, so where we expect the Christian message to not be received well, and so we're 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 not surprised, right, by these other sorts of people that are, you know, whether they're secularists or whether they're sort of gay activists or whether they're uh, sort of, you know, other religions, you know, people move in our neighborhood. This should not surprise us, right? Our expectations just shape everything. <laughs> the, the older I get, I realize communication breakdown and mm. friction because we expected different things and aren't living up to somebody else's ex- expectations. And sometimes we have unfair expectations of others. So part of what's happened, and, and, you know, Russell Moore just nails this in his recent book, Onward, mm-hmm. is he just talks about how we're moving beyond these Bible Belt days, and this is actually a good thing. Mm-hmm. This was a false idea of Christianity in our culture, and we're fading away the veneer so a real Christianity can rise up. And you just read the Bible. I mean, I did my dissertation recently on the fate of the apostles, what really happened to Peter and Paul and Andrew. So I read through the New Testament very carefully, paying attention every single time any one of the writers said anything about persecution and being hated by the world. And I knew that it was in there, Daniel, but it blew me away how basically every book in the Bible, at least every major book, every writer in some sense says, we should not be surprised that the world hates us. We should not be surprised that we get persecuted. Look what they did to Jesus. Look what they've done to Paul. Now, I don't want us to have a persecution complex, and I don't want to overstate what we experience in America compared to other countries. I'm not going to use the term persecution, but we shouldn't expect other people to, to treat us always with graciousness, always with fairness, they didn't with our Lord, and we hold mm-hmm. ideas that are increasingly be considered hateful, bigoted, and intolerant. Mm-hmm. Why do we expect people to treat us fairly? So if we don't have that expectation, and we choose that we're still going to be gracious, choose that we're still kind, and realize that probably most people, if we're gracious with them, will be gracious and kind. Most people will, not all of them. Then I think we're in a position to be less defensive, less angry, and really show the love and grace of God that we're called to show. Talk to us about building relationships with people who people who are not Christians, which we should be doing because we're on mission and we're trying to reach the world for Christ. But I think that's still a kind of a foreign concept, you know, in among American Christians or maybe are used to kind of living among Christians. Yeah, this is something that I have to work at because I teach at a Christian university. I teach at a Christian high school. I speak at Christian events. It's easy to just surround myself with Christians, but I've decided to intentionally work on this. And, I, and it starts with just a, a mental shift, personally. I was speaking at a church in the Southeast, and on the way to the church, we passed by a Unitarian church. And I asked the pastor, I said, hey, have you ever gone over there to, to get to know him? And he's like, no, 
kind of looked at me like, why would I do that? They have a whole different view of God. They're teaching things differently. I said, oh, I guess if it were me and I live in this community, I'd go meet the pastor and I'd take him for coffee and hear his story and build a relationship. I mean, that's what Jesus did. It's as easy as—I mean, people are people, regardless of their beliefs. If you just listen to them, if you show genuine interest, if you treat people the way you want to be treated, I think the vast majority of people, not all of them, there's certainly some elites in our culture that'll hate us no matter what we do. Mm-hmm. But I think most people will just respond. And it's important that in David Kennan's book on Christian, uh, he talks about how non-believers, one perception of Christian is that we just want to convert them. Mm. We just want to convert them. So it's important in these relationships that sure talk about spiritual things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, we should do this. But it's important that in those relationships, we just show people that we care about them, whether they convert or not. And I think people sense that. I mean, we sense that from others. If we have friends of a different belief, they really care about us. They just want to persuade you to buy a product or believe something differently. Christians just have, we need to have a mental change. Just get out there, build relationships, treat people the way that they would want to be treated. And it's, I mean, it's, it's really not that tough if we just get out there and do it. Mm-hmm. Well, this this apologetic study Bible that you've put together and edited for uh, for students is really a great resource. I, I mean, the thing I really enjoyed about it is just you know it kind of resources families when they're doing devotions and they're or, or they're sort of however they're doing sort of family worship or whatever that looks like, and, and it kind of a resource too. If there's questions that you know parents, I think are are overwhelmed a little bit. You know, I, I think particularly Christian parents who may not have grown up in a Christian home, or who maybe didn't go to seminary, uh, but now are faithful church attenders. They have their kids, and they just feel a little bit overmatched when they're trying to answer all these complex questions. This is really a good resource for people like that, right? Yeah, one way that parents could use this. I've had a few parents tell me that when they have kids, and probably ten, eleven up, maybe to high school, you could start younger just to kind of model it is to take the 120 questions that we have in the, in the study Bible. I mean, we found the top questions people have about mm. God, other religions, ethical issues, challenges to the Bible, and their one-page answers kind of peppered throughout the Bible. So mm. there were stories, they're easy to understand, they're quick to read. And I've had a number of parents say, we just take one night a week, that's it, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, and we just say, all right, it's discussion night. And they go around the room, they change, and some person gets to pick, all right, of all the questions, which one do you want to read? And we're just going to talk about it as a family. We might agree with it. We might disagree with it. We're not going to criticize anybody. We're going to talk about this issue. So there's a question in there, like, if God made everything, why is it wrong to smoke pot? Well, it's a great conversation to have with your students. There's a Mm. question, can you be a Christian and be a Darwinist? Mm. There's a question about same-sex marriage. Mm. And studies show that it's actually in that kind of conversation that faith is best passed on. Mm. So for parents that are saying, all right, I want a tool, I want to know how to do this, grab the study Bible, and Mm -hmm. just one night a week, just say, we're just going to discuss this, I'm going to read it, we can agree with it, we can disagree with them, but let's talk about this issue, and they could do it. Another thing that they could do, my wife and I recently got the book by a, Lee Strobel, The Case for Grace, Mm. and it's a great book. And when we're going on longer road trips, not every time, longer road trips, one of us will just read it to the family in the car and we just talk about it. Mm. 
That's it. That's great. Sometimes the kids push back. It's not like they go, wow, dad, this is so great. Thanks for the spiritual conversation. That doesn't happen. <laughs> but we just, and we don't do it every time because we don't want to exasperate them. But parents could, you know, again, with the study Bible or another book, just go, hey, once a week on this trip, I just want to read you one. Kids, tell me what you think. Let's have a conversation. And you'd be amazing how the culture of your family can start to change just by taking those issues seriously. Mm, that's really good. Well, listen, I really appreciate this conversation. This is really, really important stuff. And to help parents and educators and teachers to really help think through training the next generation, I mean, in some ways, it's really exciting times to live. It's a fresh opportunity, right, to to share the good news of the Christian message to a hungry world. And so I'm grateful for your ministry and your work, and uh, we'll definitely encourage people to get this Apologetic Study Bible for students. We'll have a link on our website. But thank you, Sean, for joining me. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me on. What you are doing is so important for the body of Christ. I love that you said this is an opportunity. Easy to get pessimistic, but we can't. Jesus has not climbed back into the grave. Amen. He's still the sovereign ruler. And all and success for us is just obedience. So we win by just being obedient and proclaiming the truth. Mm. That we gotta remember that and know that God is on our side. So this is an opportunity. Thanks for having me on. Keep up the good work yourself, Daniel. I want to thank Sean McDowell for that great conversation. If you enjoyed this podcast, would you send us a quick email at wayhome at erlc.com or write a review for us on iTunes that just helps spread the word so others can find out about this. If you missed any of our previous episodes, uh, you can go to danieldarling.com, click on the podcast page, and we have them all listed there. Or you can catch up by subscribing via iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn or Signal or however you listen to podcasts. Also remember to sign up for the weekly, the ERLC's email newsletter. You can sign up on my website, danieldarling.com, and click on the link there. But for now, thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. The Way Home is recorded and produced by Gary Lancaster. Research is conducted by David Clausen, and scheduling is handled by Marie Delph. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention.